invite you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've um, been working our way through Deuteronomy uh, chapter by chapter, and uh, we've made it to chapter 27. We're actually going to cover all of chapter 27 this morning, verses 1 through 26, or uh, yes, 1 through 26 of chapter 27. Um, You may notice that we're getting close to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. My plan is to try to wrap up the book of Deuteronomy around uh, December time, and uh, that'll give us December to reflect together on the incarnation of our Lord, and then the start of the new year, we'll begin a new series. But uh, we're, we're here in Deuteronomy 27. Let's uh, read the entire chapter and remember that this is the word of the Lord. So let's listen closely. <clears throat> now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day, You have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast image, metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and set up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. 
Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. When it comes to real estate, it's been said that the three most important things are location, location, location. And the very same thing could be said of Deuteronomy 27, which looks forward to a covenant renewal ceremony, which was supposed to take place on the slopes of two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Uh, These two mountains stood at the the very heart of the promised land. No no more central location exists in, in all of Canaan. In fact, the valley running between these two mountains is the the valley of Shechem, which means shoulder. And this is true not only geographically, but symbolically. The, The name of the valley, Shechem, again, literally meaning shoulder, because that's what these mountains look like. If you look up, you can Google a picture of these two mountains, and you'll see what I'm talking about. They look like two giant shoulders rising up out of the land. And according to Genesis chapter 12, this is the very place where Abram, later Abraham, first received the promise that God would give this land to his offspring. Uh, This is where Jacob returned after his long exile. This is where his famous well was dug. We'll come back to that later. This is where... Joseph was eventually buried, and this is where a covenant renewal ceremony did, in fact, later on take place. As we consider this passage, I think it's also important for us to recognize that the promised land of Canaan stood at the crossroads of the ancient world, connecting three continents. Basically, it was the place where the, the empires of the Fertile Crescent could, could travel to make their way between Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's a kind of land bridge, okay? And Canaan was the center of these ancient trade routes, and Shechem was the center of Canaan. <laughs> so we really are at the crossroads of crossroads here. And after all, that's what the book of Deuteronomy 
is, is about. It is a kind of crossroads experience as it confronts us with the choice between life and death. And perhaps this is why, as, as Moses looks ahead to the day when Israel will cross over the Jordan, that he commands the people to observe a special ritual ceremony at this precise location. At this act of covenant ratification, this, this covenant renewal ceremony was su- supposed to take place at, at the heart and center of Israel in order, in order to center the, the hearts of God's people upon God. Right? That's the main point of this passage, I think. There's a lot going on in Deuteronomy 27, but it is looking forward to this covenant renewal ceremony that took place at the heart of Israel to keep the heart of Israel centered upon God. And so with that in mind, let's, let's explore this covenant renewal ceremony in four parts. You know, with the question in mind, how are we to keep our hearts centered on God? There's four parts here. I'll give them to you now. This is a kind of roadmap. First, the, the command to keep the law given by multiple leaders. Second, the clear writing of the law written on large stones. Third, the construction of an altar and its sacrifices. And then fourth, the curses from Mount Ebal and the blessing from Mount Gerizim. Now, by this point in the book of Deuteronomy, if you've been with us, you've probably grown accustomed to hearing Moses command the people to obey God's commandments. In fact, maybe we're tempted to tune it out. But this is the first time in the book where we hear the voice of other leaders alongside Moses commanding God's people to keep the whole commandment. Notice the shift to the third person. Verse 1 says that Moses and the elders commanded the people. Verse 9 says Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel. So we have here this, this joint address, a combined voice that brings together the, the voices of multiple leaders. And this is really important when we remember that Moses is about to pass from the scene. This one who has led God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness wandering years on the cusp of the promised land, he is about to pass away at the ripe old age of 120. Now, don't forget then, that Deuteronomy is not only a, a series of sermons preached by a dying man to dying men and women, but it's also framed by a succession narrative. Right? The responsibilities to see Israel stay the course and follow through will fall to other leaders that Moses has, has developed even throughout the course of this book. Remember, at the very literary heart of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, 17, and 18, you have a series of laws for leaders, for prophets, priests, kings, and judges. All right, so we're being reminded, though, in this passage that no individual man 
no matter how gifted, has the ability to lead a congregation of God's people by himself. It doesn't matter if you were raised as a prince of Egypt, whether you can perform miracles, whether you've walked through the sea on dry ground, whether you have spoken to God face to face, not even Moses was able to lead God's people alone. You remember back in chapter 1, Moses admitted that very fact when he said, I am not able to bear you by myself. This is an important reminder that church leadership is never, ever supposed to be a one-man show. No one but Christ has the shoulders to bear such a burden. According to Ephesians 4, even when Christ ascended with all authority to the right hand of God the Father, he gave various leaders to, to build up the church. And this was part of Paul's missionary practice as well. We see in Acts 14, uh, verse 23, that Paul not only evangelized the lost, but he sought to establish well-functioning churches by the appointment of elders. 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul told his protege for ministry, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. And here in Deuteronomy, we see a fundamental principle of Presbyterian church polity. We see the principle of a plurality of leaders on display. And they are here taking, taking a public part in the leadership process, in even the covenant assemblies of God's people. This is this is one of the reasons that we, we are Presbyterian here at Trinity. Not, not only in name, but we seek to be Presbyterian in practice. Let me tell you, let me assure you, it is a good thing that you are not led by a single pastor. You don't need to say amen out loud, but I'm sure many of you are saying that in, inwardly. And I'll, I'll be the first to say, I am so grateful that we hear the voice of multiple leaders speaking along with the true and greater Moses. Leadership is not a one-man show. I think it's so important we remember that in a day. I was just talking to some of you this week about the, the trend of celebrityism within the church today to put one man up on a pedestal. That's not only bad for him, it's bad for the church. We need to remember that what was true for Adam in the beginning is true in other contexts as well, that it is not good for the man to be alone. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And, and uh, pro positively, Proverbs eleven fourteen says that in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So again, shepherding is not a one-man ministry. And so as we see the, the principle of a plurality of leaders here in Deuteronomy 27, I want to take the opportunity to just publicly praise God for the leadership of our elders and deacons here at Trinity. We really ought to. We ought to give thanks to God for the distribution of gifts throughout the congregation 
and pray that God would continue to raise up faithful leaders to share in the work of ministry. God has, he has over the years at Trinity blessed us with men who who look out for us, deacons who who care for us, and an incredible group of women and and, and mothers in the faith who, who pour into our whole community and who are raising up the next generation, right? Succession, succession. That's what this passage is really about, succession, faithfulness from one generation to the next. It's a fundamental part of this passage that we see is the people are commanded to keep the covenant, right? Not by Moses alone, but by a succession of multiple leaders. And it reflects a principle that still applies to the church of a plurality of leaders engaged together in the work of ministry. Now, notice just in passing in this passage, none of the elders are named We don't know any of the Levitical priests, at least in this passage, being named. And it made me me think of a pastoral adage I heard in seminary that has always stuck with me. And it goes like this. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Friends, that is a wonderful legacy to aspire to. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Second, as we look at this passage, we, we see the, the clear writing of the law on, on large stones. See it in verses 2 and through 4 and, and again in verse 8. So Moses and the elders tell the people that on the day that they cross over the Jordan and enter in, into the promised land, they're to set up these large stones and then plaster them with plaster and write on those stones all of the words of the law very plainly, very clearly. So you gotta, you got to try to envision this. This was, this was a giant monumental ritual that would have commanded everyone's attention. And of course, that's precisely the point. The purpose of the ritual was to preserve God's word and make it unmistakably clear for the people of God. So you think about, okay, what's happening here? All Israel assembled together after entering the promised land and the very first thing God wants his people to do is set up these stones and write his word clearly on these plastered stones. Why is that? Because God's word is the primary means of grace and the monumental center of all true worship. In fact, without God's word, there can be no covenant renewal, can there? Therefore, all true worship should be arranged in such a way that that the word of God, as it were, is, is plastered before us. It's set before us clearly and plainly. When when people look across the horizon of worship at Trinity PCA, they should see God's word jutting out of the horizon like monumental stones. Something that can't be 
missed. People should notice that our focus is not on a worship style. Our focus is not on a particular preacher or whoever's standing in the pulpit, but the word of God for the people of God. So God's word should be read, it should be heard, it should be taught, it should be preached clearly and plainly. It should be spoken clearly. The word of God was to be plastered before the people's eyes. That should be the aim of our worship, which is a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. When all the congregation gathers in the presence of God, and God meets with us to pronounce his covenant blessing and proclaim his covenant word to us, and we commit ourselves to serving the Lord our God. The word of God, therefore, should plainly be set before us when we gather together. And so this passage, it really has important implications for the ministry of the word in the gatherings of God's people. When all Israel was gathered, what is it that God wanted his people to receive? His word. Is it any wonder then why, going back to Paul and his protege Timothy, as Paul is nearing the end of his life, and he's charging Timothy to be faithful in gospel ministry, he tells him, preach the word. And he goes on and says, in season and out of season, and he says, look, Timothy, there are going to be times when, when people will, will not, cannot endure sound teaching, and they'll actually go looking for teachers who are going to say what they want to hear. They're going to listen to people who validate their feelings and their thoughts and their own desires. What should Timothy do? Paul, you know, what, what, what should, what's his charge when that happens? Fulfill your ministry. Preach the word in season and out of season. Thus the plain preaching of the word should, should be the aim of church leaders. But let me add to this. It should be our desire <laughs> As God's people. As Peter puts it in, in 1 Peter 2 verse 2. I love this. Like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. I wonder. Do you, do you church. Like a newborn infant. Longing for some milk. Longing for the satisfaction and the nourishment that that brings. Longing to come and as it were be bounced on your mother's knee and nourished unto eternal life by the ministry of God's word. By the way, that's how Isaiah describes the church. Longing, longing for spiritual milk. Longing for the ministry of the word. So my, my call to all of us this morning is... When we come together in the assembly of God's people, drink it in. Drink it in. And keep longing for more. Keep up your appetite. God commanded the people to write the law on large stones covered in plaster to make it abundantly clear. 
Right? And that, that tells us we need the word of God to be set before us clearly. And this, this is, for example, this is how the Apostle Paul preached. Uh, for example, in Galatians chapter 3, he says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Listen to this. It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, Paul's not saying, you know, we did a skit and put somebody up on a makeshift cross to give you some idea of what it looked like for Jesus to be crucified. It's not, Paul is talking about the ministry of the word, and he's saying that the gospel was proclaimed with such clarity that it was as though you were an eyewitness of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. By the word of the cross, the good news of Christ's death is plastered before us. So, so let's make it our aim here at Trinity to plainly set forth God's word and to long for it, to thirst for it as God's provision for our growth. Third, look at verses 5 through 7 where Moses and the elders give instructions for the construction of an altar and the offerings that are to be sacrificed there. Let me read these verses to refresh us here. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. I think a question worth asking is why, why do verses 5 and 6 forbid the use of iron tools and emphasize the use of uncut stones in the construction of this altar? And we're not told exactly why, but let me make a suggestion. Perhaps, perhaps these details are meant to remind us that the work of the altar is not a human achievement. The work of the altar is not a human achievement. That would, under, I think, seem to underscore this basic point. What, what is symbolized on the altar is ultimately the work of God. Right? No matter how hard we try, no iron tool of our making can cut it. Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In the final analysis, only God can satisfy God. Only God can satisfy God. Nevertheless, the reality of God's self-sufficiency, the reality of God's sovereignty and his sovereign grace never does away with our responsibility, right? When properly understood, an awareness of God's sovereign grace does not result in passivity. And we see that here in this passage. Grace is not opposed to obedience. It is opposed to earning, right? The, command, the people are commanded here to act. They're required to exert themselves. They're instructed to build and make no mistake about it. Building 
An altar of uncut stones would have required a lot of effort. It's a reminder, grace is not opposed to action. It is opposed to earning. And none of these requirements are intended to be a burden. In fact, as we go on in these verses, we see very clearly that they are intended for the joy of the people. As we read in verse 7, there's, there's so much more to this covenant renewal ceremony than just plaster and stone. Notice that there is a meal to be eaten. There's food and fellowship with God and his people gathered together. As verse 7 says, there you shall eat and rejoice before the Lord your God. Now here it is again. Eating and rejoicing before the Lord your God. God's people eating and drinking together is a regular, basic, fundamental aspect of covenant life. That's why we see it happening again and again and again in the book of Acts. Because the early church was taking its form and order on the basis of what had already been revealed in books like the book of Deuteronomy. So one of the reasons we're pursuing the addition of a fellowship hall so that we can feast together, rejoicing in God's goodness and grace. And whenever we are invited to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in the context of worship, we, we are not only invited to see the gospel with plaster-like clarity, we are invited to a full-bodied sensory experience of covenant fellowship with the Lord and his people. We eat and, and drink and rejoice together before the Lord our God. This is the goal. Make no mistake about it. This is the goal of all true worship. To deepen our full-souled, full-bodied experience of covenant communion with God. Now, as we keep going in our passage, let's, let's go to verses 11 through 26, where the 12 tribes of Israel are divided up into two groups of six. Half the tri tribes are, are instructed to stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. The other six are told to stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. And there's been a lot of discussion about why these tribes go there and these tribes go there, we're not going to get into that. I just want us to focus on how striking it is that although covenant blessing is mentioned here in verse 12, did you notice that no actual blessing is pronounced in Deuteronomy 27? Only curses. Only curses are found here. You probably, probably don't need me to point that out to you. You probably noticed it. Just while we read through the passage together, although covenant blessings are mentioned, only covenant curses are pronounced. And likewise, when you go into the next chapter, Deuteronomy 28, it contains three times as many covenant curses as it does blessings. And that certainly raises a question. Why? Why this, this asymmetrical uh, emphasis on covenant curses over covenant blessing why is there so much space given 
to these, frankly, alarming and disturbing words. And I think, I think the short answer that gets us to the heart of the matter is this. Because love warns. Love warns. We, we understand this, don't we, at, at a human level, right? As parents, when our, our children are at a young age, as Israel was in its youth. Right? What, do you, what do you do? You, you seek to lovingly warn your children by saying things like, if you do this, then that. If, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you will get burned. If you run out into a busy street, you will get hit by a car. If you break into the pool without an adult around, you could drown. Love warns. And an unwillingness to warn at that stage of life really is a failure to love. And because God is anything but unloving, he warns his son Israel in advance. The wages of sin is death. Now something else to notice about all of the, the sins mentioned here. Did you notice how there's an air of secrecy to, to almost all of them? There's a common thread connecting all of these sins that are cursed. In a dozen curses, the main theme running throughout them is secrecy. Doing things in the dark. Doing things behind people's back. Acting deceitfully. What is the warning here? The warning is, you can't hide from God. You can't pull one over on Him. Stop pretending like you can. Your sin will find you out. So don't kid yourself. Love warns. Don't, don't forget what the serpent told the woman just before she reached out to grasp the forbidden fruit. The serpent said, you will not surely die. He was not loving the woman by dressing everything up and directly defying God's loving warning. Again, love warns. That's why God warned the man and the woman that in the day that they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's, that's why there are so many curses here, friends. Unlike the profuse kisses of an enemy, God doesn't beat around the bush. He, he is, in fact, willing to wound in order to prevent death. Like a good surgeon, right, who, who is willing to, in one sense, wound in order to remove something that is truly life-threatening. God warns us because he loves us so much. Think, think about Jesus. I'm sure you've heard this before, that Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in his generation and because, because he does not want us to choose the way that leads to death. That's why he describes the way of sin and death in vivid and 
disturbing detail. But our, our problem, I think our, one of our problems, is that sin so often appears desirable and even harmless, doesn't it? Genesis 3 again says that when Eve looked at the fruit of the forbidden tree, that it appeared to be good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. That is often how sin presents to us. Just run through this list of curses, right? Dishonoring your mom and dad when they tell you something you don't want to hear. Stealing something that's not yours deceitfully to get what you want. Misleading others for your own gain. Perverting justice for your own selfish benefit. Engaging in sexual immorality. Vice, violence in secret for the sake of self-preservation. And on and on we could go. But all of these things can appear good to us at the time. But it is, in fact, the path that leads to death. And, and we have to learn to see things the way they really are. That is one of the reasons we need God's word plastered before us clearly because we need to put on the glasses of scripture to see rightly once again. Because one of the things sin does is it blinds us to reality. These curses are listed one after the other to really help us wake up along with the 53 consecutive curses in the next chapter. They are quite literally, I'm not speaking flippantly here, okay? They are quite literally intended to scare the hell out of us. God provides us with these words of warning because they are exactly what we need. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Isaiah 66, verse 2, the Lord says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, these curses are meant to help us tremble before the one who comes to dwell with us. And, And perhaps the only thing that can help us tremble even more is when we come to understand that in Christ, God himself has borne the curse for his people between his own shoulders. You know that that old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me To tremble, tremble, tremble. Truth of the gospel is that Jesus experienced all of the covenantal curses that were pronounced at Shechem, the place of the shoulders. He he shouldered all of the disaster that was pronounced on Mount Ebal in order that we might experience the blessings of Mount Gerizim. Think of this, the Lord... The Lord, the the lion of the tribe of Judah, crossed over the valley and stood with us who lived under the curse so that we might cross over and stand with him in the place of blessing 
and life. So my question for you today as we, as we wrap up is simply this. Where are you standing today? Where do you stand? Have you, have you crossed from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ? I began by saying that Deuteronomy 27 is all about location, location, location. And the truth is that Christ is the place where we must be. He is, he is not only the crossroads of crossroads, he is the ultimate destination, the place where God has chosen to cause his name to dwell. It is the, he is the only place where heaven and earth meet. So we don't have to make a physical pilgrimage like the Israelites in order to find the place of blessing. We simply need to go to Jesus, the place of God's promised blessing where he has caused his name to to dwell. I can't, I can't resist pointing out to you as we conclude that the geography of this place comes up in the Gospel of John when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. In this very place, she is standing on Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim, and Jesus engages her. And he reveals to her that the time is passing where people will gather on this mountain or that mountain. The time is coming in him where all who worship by spirit and truth come to him by faith. So friends, let us go to Jesus and experience God's promised blessings. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your Son, the, the center of everything, in order to find us. Help us to receive your promised blessing by faith in him, because he stood condemned in our place and took the curse for us, so that we might know your blessing. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.